directly with the coach. Man. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. radiocom Thought for the day, he who allows the alien to live shares its crime of existence. Hello, world builders, and welcome to episode 77 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. We're joining us for the first time. We're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium, using the gaming systems created by Fantasy Flight Games. This might be a chance to get a few new listeners, because as of uh, yesterday, we are now listed on Stitcher as well as on iTunes. Okay. Are you, are you familiar with Stitcher or Mike? Or? Not at all. It's sort of like Pandora for podcasts. Basically, you get given random shows and if you like the shows you get more shows like that basically so okay right. if you're listening to us on Stitcher please do give us a like that helps us find more listeners as well yeah now each episode we talk about a different game setting uh, tonight we'll be talking about Rogue Trader but before we go into that we've done our own gaming in the last sort of two or three weeks since we last got together uh, so first off we did our first session of Vampire Dark Ages so thoughts on that, Mike? How did that went? And you were pretty tired on the day. Um, I think it went quite well. I, I think you had some pacing issues. Yeah. And the fact that I think you were expecting far too much to get done in too short a time. Yeah. And the other thing I did that you were involved in is I ran my second session of uh, Star Wars via Roll20. Yeah, how did uh, it go? That, that also had some pacing issues. <laughs> uh, it, it was sort of like... I mean, you did, I, We did an entire episode oh, about pacing, pacing yeah. and it hasn't helped. So it was pretty much like my the last session finished off like literally right at the end of the scenario yeah and so the second session started off with like the i, I guess the in-between scenario stuff so you know we're, we're sort of like relied upon the players to sort of get what they wanted done and then progress on to the point that sort of the second scenario started so yeah the first half of the game is a bit sort of like okay so what do you do now okay what do you do now such but uh then they got to the point where it was sort of like a bit of information overload so i said this in the game that's it we finish up here, I will just send you a bunch of stuff via Facebook and you can go through and work out what you want to do because I'm running um, the Jewel of Yavin, which is the module that we played, which oh. is the whole heist thing as such, you know. So yeah. I, I gave more information up front about all the people and all the you know stuff they've got to do and they can sort of plan in between sessions as to how to do that. So yeah, probably Plus I'm putting in the mechanic of, uh, the main mechanic of using a Destiny point to do a uh, Ocean's Eleven style flashback <laughs> to how a particular circumstance was previously accounted for and... Oh, sort of yeah. planned out as such so this should be a bit of fun in the next game session anyway yep uh, okay so on to tonight's episode it is a Rogue Trader show uh, we'll do a relatively short news section then uh, we've been promising it for a while but we're going to cover the uh, system star system creation rules from Stars of Inequity yep uh, then we're going to do a discussion about the Dauntless class light cruiser uh, then we'll do plot hooks war gear I'm doing a review of Traders Nexus I actually found there's a, a 40k you know Rogue Trader component we hadn't actually reviewed yet and uh then we're going to talk about uh ideas for porting your rogue trader game into second edition dark heresy rule set yeah so i sort of gave a bit of thought then we'll do a regular community section and close out the show sounds good okay let's get into it command acknowledged accessing imperial archives okay before we get into the news there's one thing i wanted to quickly discuss with you that i forgot to say in the intro i was going to do this during the sort of our fortnight on gaming it's not gaming related 
uh, it's not even related to any about this this show, but I had to get it off my chest actually, Mike. Yep. Was uh, the other night I went and saw the new Underworld film. Oh, was it dreadful? So, you know, like, I, I like the Underworld franchise, and my local cinema was doing a, a pre-screening of it. They had their special Fright Night pre-screening. Uh, and the funny thing was, so, so the night before I went along, I, I actually went to book tickets, and their website kept crashing. And I phoned up the cinema, and I was like, your website keeps crashing, we're trying to try to book tickets. And they said, yeah, you can do that when it gets busy. I said, look, can I just turn up on the day and buy tickets? And they said, what's it for? I said, the underworld pre-screening. She said, one second. They put me on hold. They came back about five minutes later and said, yeah, I've only sold two tickets so far, so you should be right. Uh, now, by the time the movie was on, there was probably about 12 people in the cinema. And, and yeah, that was 92 minutes of my life I'll never get back. Was it that bad? Yeah, and I've got to say, because it does apply somewhat to, to, to gaming, what broke it for me was just the lazy, lazy writing. It was just so... Like, no, it's not even that. It's just, um, you know, like the classic things of, of bad writing, like, you know, Deus Ex Machina's multiple times. Actually, I'm going to give some really minor spoilers because I just had to, once again, this is just, it's been bothering me and I've decided to use this show as a... You know, as a, a way to vent. As a way to vent, that's right. So let me give you the, the, the basic storyline premise, all right? So the bad guy in the movie is after a MacGuffin, all right? Okay. And the reason he wants that MacGuffin is because he wants to basically storm and destroy the stronghold of, let's say, the good guys, ostensibly. It's a bit hard to say good guys, anyway, but that's his whole plan is once I have this MacGuffin, I can storm and destroy their stronghold. If I don't have the MacGuffin, I can't possibly win. You know, like, I'm not even going to try until I have it because I'm just, it's doomed to failure and everybody knows it, you know. And then about two-thirds of the way through the film, the villain realizes he can't get the MacGuffin. You know, the, the, the good guys have successfully kept him from it and it's just impossible for him to get it so he sort of says you know what okay I just, I'm just going to have to attack I'm just going to have to attack the stronghold I can't do anything about it I'm just going to have to go as it is and of course the attack is so successful it relies on the heroes to come and save the day at the last moment it's like you know oh I, I, I was half <laughs> expecting the typical, I can't remember which movie it was but it was a very similar sort of thing we need the MacGuffin to be able to storm the fortress yeah. oh no they've caught the MacGuffin and they've taken it to the fortress I better storm the fortress to get the MacGuffin <laughs> so I can storm the fortress yeah, it's, it, it's just yeah yeah and, you know, there was like a, a thing where there's like a particular enclave of vampires and they sort of say how have you survived here without being attacked by wolves for, for 500 years and they say oh because it's so cold here you know, the werewolves just can't attack us. And then literally five minutes later in the film, a bunch of werewolves in jackets, like, like you know, ski jackets turn up and attack. So it's... <laughs> My God, in the last 500 years, they've discovered fur rugs. That's right, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, so just, just I mean, look, it, it, any any film with Kate Beckinsale in, in latex, you know, has the eye candy factor ticked for me. Yeah. But the story factor is just, it was like some of the laziest writing I've ever seen. So shame, shame on the writers, you know. A, a total break then from the previous Underworld movies, which was like bastions of quality writing. Yeah, you know, I, I may not even buy this one on DVD, unlike the rest. So <laughs> It'll be there. You that's watch. Right. That's right. I, I'm, I'm sure the Resident Evil, last Resident Evil film would be so much better. I want to go see that shortly. So, Well, actually, I'm probably going to go see that one. It's going to be terrible, and I'm going to love it anyway. All right, so... After that little off-topic uh, rant, uh, rant yep. I'll get back onto the actual show. Okay, so news-wise, we're probably a little bit late to the table on this one, but just on the FFG side, they had their holiday sale recently. Uh, so as of the recording of this show, I think it did end a couple of days ago. Uh, but interesting enough, they had all the various 40k books, really, really cheap, like $5 books, basically, for all the... like. And we're talking the hardcover printed books, not the PDFs as well. So yeah. uh, I think if someone did mention it on our uh, Facebook page, so hopefully... 
people that really wanted to buy the books did see it and got a chance to buy the books cheap. But that's that's done now. And if you look on their website, all the books are pretty much out of stock with a few exceptions and they're back up to the sort of the $30 range again. So onto the Games Workshop side. And it looks like they've done a bit of a... Well, first off, they've released a whole bunch of new Thousand Suns figures. Yep. Some very nicely ones too. I really like the new Terminators they've done. Yep. Uh, they've also released Magnus the Red as a figure. Very nice figure. Lovely, beautiful, big, big Yes, <laughs> as a demon prince. Yeah. And they've also... So they've done a couple of books too, and they've actually furthered the storyline, haven't they? Yeah. So, so the the second part of the, the Battle of Fenris has come out. Yeah. Is coming out. And this, very, is, this, very, this very isn't very part short. of Horus Heresy. This is actually part no, of the no, current... This yeah. is the current 40k meta plot, as it were. Yep. And a continuation. So now... Magnus the Red and the Thousand Sons have turned up to destroy Fenris. Yeah, and he's reconciled and with Araman as well. Araman's back in there now. Re- reconciled with, well, kind of reconciled with Araman, I suppose, to at least do this thing. And then they'll probably go back to hating each other. And other ch- legions and, sorry, other chapters have turned up and other groups of Inquisitors and other things have turned up to fight against the Fenris Wolves because they've been manipulated into it by Zinch. And they keep talking about how there's, you know, demons cavorting across the face of Fenriths, which makes me wonder, well, even if the Fenris, you know, even if Space Wolves win, the planet's still probably going to be exterminated. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Uh, I noticed that the Aramon figure comes riding a Disc of Zinch as well. Yes. So I, I haven't really seen Disc of Zinch in the 40k setting much. I mean, yeah, they, they appear as like the flyers of Zinch. Yeah. But you know, there's a sort of classic disc riding sorcerer. It's really more of a, uh, a fancy thing, isn't it? It is really. I mean... That they have them, and they're certainly overpowered in 40k on the tabletop. But you yeah. can make your nice little death stars with your screamers. And, yeah, it's just really... To be honest, I don't think they fit Curse Space Marines. I never mm-hmm. have. I think juggernauts and big, slow-moving things are a bit more the Curse Space Marine style. I, they certainly have a place, but... They've just always felt a little bit shoehorned in. Yeah, the thing I noticed was I looked at the uh, box set of the Rubric Marines and sort of like based upon the fluff, I've sort of viewed Rubric Marines as not really being in action poses, almost like, you know, they they should be pretty much... Just tromping forwards. Mannequin straight, you know, tromping forwards, gun out, shooting and such, and they've really got quite dynamic poses in the... uh, in the figures now. I guess that makes a much more interesting sort of collection building and painting option. But They've always sort of said that with the the rubric marines, the more other battles going on around them and the more sorcerers are near them, the more active they become and the more like the marines they used to be they become. So I'm guessing when you're invading as a complete legion with dozens of sorcerers and demons and you're stomping space wolves into the ground yeah <laughs> probably get quite active yes yeah, so they get quite excited yeah yes battle lust uh okay on to the uh, eternal crusade side and there has been some recent issues regarding latency with the game just after a few recent updates they were planning to release campaign objectives in the last update but that sort of got delayed because they wanted to focus on the latency side first yeah they said that the sort of the, the december patch is going to include a few new things like some redesigns in the appearance, particularly for some of the veteran veteran characters, for example, giving them more sort of differentiation. Uh, they're going to put in a new PvP map, uh, a new PvE game mode. Uh, they're going to do a bit of balancing on the melee side, and they're going to get some more customization options. So they pretty much said just two objectives, fix the game, put in more of what people love. Yeah. And that's what they're trying to do there for, for Christmas, basically. So 
Hopefully, it comes out before. Yeah, so I'm keen to I'm keen to give the uh, the new PVE game mode a go. That being said, I think what is it now? We're recording on the second of December, so it's a week until uh, Deathwing comes out. Facebook Deathwing, so I'll probably be on that because I've been playing um, the new Call of Duty game as well. So I've got that sort of that first person first person shooter, shooter thing. Yeah, going. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. that's all set in space too. So yeah. <laughs> all right, that's it for the news. Let's keep going. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. All right, let's talk some system now. Okay. And uh, we're on to Rogue Trader again. And a few episodes ago, we did cover... Well, a few Rogue Trader episodes ago, we did cover the uh, colony building system from Stars Van Equity. And we did also promise we were also going to cover the star system creation system. Yeah. So we'll go through that now. Uh, I will point out that my initial impression is now... I'm not, once again, not an astrophysicist. Uh, but I like to think I you know, have a few understandings from the various documentaries I've watched on the History Channel as such, or Discovery. And, and I, I definitely take this as science fiction science. Yeah. You know, it's the, 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 the sort of pseudo-science that you need in science fiction because under real circumstances, the, the exact conditions required to have a planet which sustains complex life is, you know, so specific that, uh, whereas, you know, in, in this system, you will pretty, pretty easily get, you know, life on multiple planets in your system potentially as well. So, which is not, once again, you know, anything else. If you assume the universe is infinite, there's an infinite number of planets out there that have the same circumstances. But So, uh, so are you suggesting it's not science fact no. that there are <laughs> immortal robots living on Mars? We, we don't know that. It's Hey, Mars does... The, the population of Mars is entirely robots. Oh, that's true. So... <laughs> uh, all right, so... The, the rule system basically breaks down into three parts. Okay, So there's the, the star system itself, then the individual planets, and then the third part is basically a breakdown of the environments on those planets. So you, you'll sort of repeat step two and step three multiple times. So to start off with, when you build a system, uh, the first thing you're going to work out is what are the system features. And, and this is, I guess, like a sort of a, a two or three word description that defines what is unique about this system you know maybe it's got strange gravity tides maybe there's you know it's a sign of a great battle as such or um any of these things will, will basically give you a series of modifiers that apply to later roles to basically determine the various features of the system and it, it helps you capture that uh, I, I guess that key element yeah if i was using this system as a mechanic to you know so i'm, I'm a lazy gm and i decide you know my my road trader group just wants to explore so I'm just going to make up a bunch of systems and they can just explore those because, you know, these systems may or may not be good for the game, but not for reasons I'll come in later on. I'm just going to create a bunch of systems. I would probably say rather than rolling on the first chart, you know, just pick a different defining sort of feature for each system. That way you'll have a different flavor for each setting, each system as well because it'll have that sort of unique thing and that affects all the later rolls. So I'd almost turn this into a pick one, especially when we're going to be re- reusing the system for different, different uh, star systems. Yeah. Uh, then we work out what kind of star it is in terms of the sun itself. Uh, you know, it's got your classic sort of, you know, dwarf suns, white, yellow, blue, red suns, and the, the various impacts on what they do to the sun's solar zones. Once again, it's more cosmetic. It, it, it affects other things later on in terms of the, the, the planets, etc. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, it's more of a, 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 a aesthetic thing for your system. Uh, then you come down to the fun part. Uh, and, and this is called system elements. And this is where you work out what are the actual things that exist in your system. Uh, it's broken down into sort of three segments. 
You've got the inner cauldron, which is supposed to be all your sort of very close to the sun, you know, heat blasted worlds, a la Mercury, Venus, Venus etc. Mm-hmm. You know, um, then you've got your primary biosphere, which some some other game systems might call the green zone, for example, which is the area in the sun's light which is most um, conducive towards life sustaining planets as such this would include things like Earth, Mars Mars, Mars etc Mars teeming and bustling with life <laughs> hey it's in it's got the things that could sustain life if there was life there basically okay. depending on except yeah. for atmosphere except for atmosphere that's right yeah. uh, and then you've got the outer reaches which is pretty much where it's beyond the sun's sort of solar glow where it's enough, where there's not enough really to form life except maybe so this is one of the things that, that, that uh, my, I'm not clear on from an astrophysics point of view. So lots of game systems basically say, okay, well, if I've got a gas giant, okay, a gas giant usually has a lot of moons, like take Jupiter, for example. And any of those moons could be the size of a conventional rocky planet. And therefore, one of those moons could potentially sustain life. And that's certainly what, something you can achieve with, with this setting. I don't know how realistic that actually is to have, to have life-sustaining moons on a you know that orbit a planet that orbits the sun. Yeah, they probably uh, wouldn't get much sun, is the thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's up to you. It yeah. Depends how much fact you want in your game. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, considering what game it is, I'd say fact probably not a huge part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you're talking about a setting where terraforming was also yeah. yeah I mean, the past too, so. plenty of alien races and things have come through and terraformed planets and, and done whatever they want. So you know, go nuts. Yeah, that's it. So. This I found, you actually get quite a lot of elements in your... Uh, now, one thing I found was a bit pointless was the fact that you roll to see how many elements you get, and one of the elements you can get is nothing. So, you know, you go, okay, I've got 12 elements in my, in my system, I start rolling, and six of them turn up nothing. Why didn't I just get six elements at the start? You know, that, 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 that was an odd choice to put nothing in there. That being said, if you took nothing out, I think that... It get, everything gets a bit busy. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a bit, there's a little bit too much. So I'd almost say take out the nothing, but reduce the initial thing about how many actual elements there are. But that's, you know, that's, that's just my personal take on it anyway. Yeah. You know, we've got quite a few. If, if you just throw out planets in our system, we've got quite a few. That's not just, that's not to throw out things like asteroid belts and, you know, unknown gravity tides, that sort of stuff, you know, which can all be part of what you can roll up with this chart. Uh, okay. Then you've got, so then you move on to step two, which is for each. Uh, planet, both gas giants and rocky planets, you go through planet creation. Uh, now, some of this stuff is less important for gas giants because gas giants, for example, probably won't have an ecosystem that's worth looking into anyway. But uh, so, first thing we work out is the body of the planet, which is pretty much its size. Now, first off, the size of the planet has an impact on everything else, like gravity, like atmosphere. And, and this is quite straightforward. This is basically, you know, generally speaking, a larger planet has more gravity. It, it, it's, sim- it's simple mass. Um, Mike, you're a science background. Is there a reason why a bigger planet would have less gravity? Depends on what the composition of the planet is. Yeah, okay. I, I suppose, I mean... I guess it's, so, so it's, it's, it's a density thing as much as a mass thing. It's then, yeah, a so. density thing as much of a mass thing. I mean, you could have a large planet which actually has a very thick atmosphere layer. Earth's got quite a thin atmosphere layer. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine if Jupiter actually had a solid centre in the middle which was the size of Earth? Yeah. And then it had, you know, that, that 64 <laughs> times the size of Earth atmosphere. Yeah. 
it would s- still have a lot of gravity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even gas giants have a core. Yeah. So, yeah. Because uh, this is what I was going to get, is that so you can still in the system, it, it, the, the dice bias the other way, but you could have a, um, a small planet with a high gravity or a large planet with a low gravity or a planet with heaps of gravity but no atmosphere. Um, and, and, and usually, you know, the, the, the planet's magnetic field and its, its gravity is what holds the atmosphere to the planet. So it would seem odd getting some you know, massive planet with you know, crushing gravity that then has no atmosphere whatsoever. I, I, I guess it could, it could have been, have been stripped away at some point or something could have happened. Yeah. So solar I'm, explosion, a slow, solar flare, anything like that. Yeah. So the, the, la- the last science fiction film I watched, not including Underworld, which is more sort of, you know, paranormal horror or paranormal romance, uh, the last one was I watched was Independence Day 2. So uh, <laughs> there's a whole thing there about, yeah, about, about sucking the core out of a planet and therefore, you know, it, it's, its atmosphere, etc., falls off because of uh, the lack of magnetic field. Um, okay, so yeah, you work out you work out the planet size in terms of the body. Uh, then that you then use to determine the gravity. Uh, and see, I found this when I was building the system for our road trader game or the star system. If I wanted to use, was that I, I wanted to have a world that was life sustaining, and every, I didn't end up with too much gravity. Or you know, no atmosphere or poisonous atmosphere. You know, um, I guess you've got to fudge the roles if you want to actually get planets that you know meet exactly your yeah, criteria. Yeah, or you want you want Earth-like planets. You know, there's certainly plenty of things you can do on planets that have high gravity or low gravity or poisonous atmosphere. There are various ways to sort of manage that. But if you want you know to have a regular campaign on an Earth-like planet, you might need to sort of take. Hold of the dice and uh, and make some decisions rather than just leaving it to leaving it to chance. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you work out the orbital features of a planet, which could include things like moons, mm. and you know moons could inherently Rings. turn. Yep, yeah, moons could turn into uh, other planets as well. Once again, if you've got a substantially large gas giant, you could have moons that are you know other also planet sized and have all the various features of a planet. Um, you work out the presence or absence of an atmosphere and then also the atmospheric composition. So it can be everything from, um, you know, life-sustaining through to poisonous through to corrosive. Yeah, um, yeah, so in some cases, you know, a breath mask will do sometimes, you know, void suits required sometimes. You simply can't land here because it's, an, you know, it's a concentrated ball of acid pretty much. Uh, then you've got your climate so, uh, yeah, once again, these things are all affected by things like the, the location in terms of which solar zones it's in. Uh, so you could have a planet with a life-staying atmosphere, which is also several, hundred, several thousand degrees Kelvin, um, yeah, or, or, or a frigid wasteland yeah, with, with an atmosphere. Uh, and then finally, the habitability of the planet. So, and this habitability really just defines the presence or absence of water. It doesn't say whether there is life there or not. It simply says, is, does, you know, does water exist in... And, and, you know, and keep in mind, you can have water under the surface, yeah. and that's not really true habitability because you can't, life on the surface can't access that water easily. Yeah, I, I have to say, I find it a little bit funny that they're sort of suggesting, oh, you can have a life-bearing planet with its liquid rivers of mo- you know, frozen <laughs> nitrogen and oxygen. <laughs> Just the right amount that you can breathe it if it wasn't so cold that it kills you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, 
once again, it's pseudoscience. It, yeah. It's designed to give you something which is unique, you know, without necessarily being useful. Yeah, or or, or, or horrifically accurate either. Um, okay, then. So once you've done all those things for your planet, you then have to look at your planet environments for each planet. The first thing you work out is a number of territories. Okay, so the territories thing is where it got a little bit out of whack for me. So if you want to, you could think of a territory as a continent. But the thing is that any individual territory only has one core ecosystem as such. You know, so you have a desert territory. You can have, you know, a forest territory as such. Uh, Which would mean that you would need to have multiple territories per continent... But you only end up with... I only ended up with sort of like three or four or five maximum per per planet, basically. Hey, this is 40k. You should be glad you got more than one, <laughs> one territory. More than one terrasphere. Yes. <laughs> it's a desert um, world. It's a nice world. It's a forest world. I yeah. mean, <laughs> St- Star Trek and Star Wars were both exactly the same as well. Exactly. It's, it's a science fiction trope. Yes. Uh, but in this case here, you can have multiple territories that have different styles. Um, with each territory, you work out uh, what are the resources. So, in this case, there's a bunch of different types of resources, like you know, standard minerals, radioactive isotopes, you know, xenos ruins as such. And you'll generate a number of these resources, and then each of these resources will have a nebulous number between zero and one hundred to indicate how plentiful it is. Uh, and I, I guess this is where you get down to like your colony scale sort of stuff. It, of how much you know, can, how much resources can you extract from the planet? The the basic concept is that resources are not renewing themselves, or they are in that for for if you're just mining, you know, a resource at the rate at which it's replenishing, it's not worth product factor. You know, it, it, it's 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 simply if it's you're mining a, iron at the rate it's replenishing naturally in the planet's crust. <laughs> you're doing it wrong. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Sending urchins out to pick it up in buckets. <laughs> so, basically, uh, whenever you decide you want to draw profit factor from a world, you have to deplete one of the resources. Effectively, it's, it's part of the colony system we um, talked about before. A little bit of strip mining and clear cutting it's never hurt anyone. Exactly right. Uh, then you work out uh, landmarks. So landmarks can be uh, things like you know, like volcanoes, whirlpools, uh, just things in each territory that give it some more flavour as such. That's something. Some more danger. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, um, you do some basic working out of what are the native species like. So, and we're here we're talking about effectively animal type species as such. So, uh, you know, and it does go into the fact that in most, you know, that there are, there are common things across species. Like you'll have usually. Apex predators, you'll have some sort of behemoth type species, you know, you'll have, you know, lower food chain, you know, herbivores as such. You can work out a few example creatures that you can farm slash kill slash run from as such. Give you some basic ideas. It's got a few sort of templates to build those together. Yeah. Um, And the last thing you work out is inhabitants. So whether or not there are actually intelligent civilizations there uh, or have been there as such. And the thing is, that once you get inhabitants, all your resources start dropping. Because it's assumed that the inhabitants there have previously mined, mined some of it, etc. Farmed, you know, destroyed the Xenos ruins, whatever the case may be. Um, so, going through those three steps, so, so creating the system first and getting enough planets, and then with each planet working out its, you know, its, its structure and then what's there, you really get like a lot of information. I just typed this out on a, just a Word document when I was doing a one for our system. I think it ends up about six pages long. 
yeah. of just stuff. You know, that includes the moons of gas giants that were big enough to actually have rules of territories, etc. And the one thing I found was um, with enough rolls, and there are enough rolls, everything's going to be there. So every system is going to have Xenos ruins somewhere. You know, either on an asteroid or on a meteor or on a planet or in a territory somewhere. There's going to be you know, when you roll the dice enough, every result is going to occur. Um, yeah, there's going to be plentiful resources. You're never going to end up in a situation where the group goes to a to to a, a system. system and says, "Well, there's nothing here. If there's if there's nothing there, they just didn't look hard enough." Um, so I think I really wish I had this system when we were running the Unbound, because the amount of times I said, "There's asteroids," like, "Oh, can we mine those asteroids?" and I'd usually respond with something like, "Ah, oh, well, yeah, the the time required to mine it would offset any actual gain you got from it as such," you know. Uh, whereas here I can say, okay, no worries. It's got, um, you know, 42 points of ferrous metals, ferrous minerals. So you need to go through and do what you want to do in order to try and recover that and work out what you want to do with it, you know, what the value is. Yeah, it <laughs> depends if you want to fail your astroethics class. <laughs> not allowed to mine asteroids, or so some people are saying. Yeah, okay, no worries. Yeah. Uh, so look, I mean, this is the sort of system that is not going to really play in your game it takes a long time to go through this you can't just go oh the group says we're going to random coordinate you know Z4 and you go then we just quickly pull up a system you know and I suppose you could with a bit of smarts go and create you know an app or a program just to sort of generate this for you but as I said I think a lot of elements in this to make it compelling you want to take a bit of an active hand in deciding some of the things like you want to try and get at least one world the group wants to land on and do stuff on and reasons why Um, and you know you want to make sure that each system feels unique as such. Uh, so this is certainly a... You're planning for your next Rogue Trader game. The group has just set off on exploration. Create the next place they actually end up. Yeah. Uh, I think... I mean, have you had a chance to sort of look through in the past? Morning? I have. I have. Um, my, can, my main problem with the system is exactly what you've already said is something which is going to happen, which is every single system is going to end up with Xenos ruins, some sort of alien life form, something. And realistically... That just it shouldn't happen. Okay. There should be systems where you go to, and there are things to mine and things to dig up and things to kill, maybe. But most of the time, not really. That's yeah. why rogue traders aren't all fabulously wealthy all of the time, and that and that's why when you find a planet with xenos ruins, it should be a risk and something that you're going well. It's got Xenos ruins, but it's carpeted in, you know, horrible living aliens which will just eat us instantly, but it's still worth going there because yeah. Xenos ruins are rare. That's right. Those, whereas, the, the, the Xenos that had those ruins went somewhere. They're probably yeah. eaten by those things, by those terror beasts. Yeah, but there is <laughs> the, the system I felt made it a bit like, well, there were Xenos ruins there, but you know what? There'll be Xenos ruins at the next system we go to, and it probably won't be carpeted in these horrible monsters which will just eat us instantly. We'll keep looking until we find one which is nice and easy to plunder. Yeah. So, I want to throw one last caveat in, and this is my D-bad, you know, don't be a dick moment. Yeah. So, it's clear that this system is based on some real science. You know, yeah. it's a layman's approach to astrophysics and such. As I said, I'm not an astrophysicist, I could point out what I thought were flaws and how it went together, but it seemed good enough. It fit the setting, and I may need to make minimum changes to get my thing working. You might be an astrophysicist, you know, and if you're playing a game... And your GM says, blah, 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 small planetoid, you know, dead atmosphere, blah, blah, And you don't, don't, you know, snap and down, you know, no, that's not how it works. You know, it's a game. Let's let your GM, you know. I mean, the, I remember, uh, we played, both played World of Warcraft. Right? Yeah. I can't remember where it was 
one of the one of the expansion packs had a location that was basically like a a, a valley, and outside the valley was the ocean. The ocean level was above the valley floor, and there were like waterfalls from the ocean entering and falling down to form rivers in the valley floor. And you know, a friend of mine who's a geologist was like. Why hasn't the ocean just filled the entire valley? You know, it's like I can't play this game anymore. My com- my immersion is completely broken by how how stupid. It's, so it it's... wasn't the dragons or the orcs or <laughs> the, right. the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. magical it was, fireballs. It was, it, was, it was the geological failure in his yeah. mind that, that, yeah, that, that killed his immersion. So uh, that's okay. it. Yeah. Don't be a dick. Just accept it. You know, the system is there to make light. It makes light work for the GM. Yeah. Just enjoy it. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep going. All subsequents report to the administrator for career assignment. Welcome to our latest ship discussion in place of our career discussion. And we've sort of been covering off a different hull type each episode. So we've done a transport, we've done a raider, we've done a frigate. So now it's time for a light cruiser. Yeah. And going through the ships in the main book, there is one light cruiser, and that is the Dauntless class light cruiser. Now, first I'm going to say, I think this is probably going to be, if you took a group of, uh, like several groups of Rogue Trader players who only had access to the core book when it first started, I reckon probably the Dauntless might have been the most common ship people. The most took. common ship, yeah. Yeah, that, I'd say so. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's it's pretty well rounded uh, in terms of what it offers you. You know, it's one of the biggest ships. It's not you, know, you have to get the full points to go all the way to the Lunar, uh, but the Dauntless gives you that nice selection of you know you can put the word cruise on it. Yes, it's light cruiser, but you know cruise is the important word, of course. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the, the Dauntless itself. It's a relatively old design, not as old as the uh, as the Lunar class, but certainly it is a a naval design ship. Primarily, the Dauntless was seen as a form, I guess, a scouting ship for the Imperial Navy. So, I mean, certainly you can have scouting frigates as well, but they usually operate in in terms in groups of ships. Whereas this was a a single uh, vessel scouting ship. You know, it would do. Um, Long term times away from its sort of supply run as such, so it could do deep deep void scouting effectively. So it would be you know, have extended supply vaults to manage that, uh, and it, it had that good mixture of both maneuverability and firepower that meant it could sort of decide how it would tackle its situation based upon the needs of the crew. Yeah. So you know, a nice, well-rounded ship in that respect. In terms of its stats, it's got a speed of seven, which is not too bad for any sort of cruiser. Um, plus twenty detection. 19 armor, 60 space, plus 15 maneuverability, 60 hull. It's one real Achilles heel is only one turret rating. Yep. Whereas most light cruisers have two, basically. But yeah, there's only one turret rating here. If you're playing using only the core book, that isn't really a no, disadvantage. Not really, not no. really. Uh, It's 55 ship points, so that's quite approachable depending on what you roll. If you're only using the main book, you've obviously just got the random system of, you know, what do I have in terms of ship points versus profit, but... That's still, I mean, even if you're using the uh, the path system in Into the Storm, still quite easy to achieve 50 55 points. points, with a few points left over to actually customise as well. So you probably want weapons, for example. And engines. Yeah, well, it's pretty much you can get everything, you know, everything has a free option except weapons. There's yeah. no free weapon option as such. Um, and then weapons options are one port, one starboard, one um, prow. Yeah, so yeah, it's important to remember, because it's a light cruiser, the Prow weapon slot can fire port starboard. And that's right, yeah. And you can put a lance in there as well. So. Can stick a lance in there too, yeah. That's it, yeah. yeah so, so it's really quite 
able to shoot in any direction yeah. and quite tactically flexible. Yeah, it's not like a conventional like larger cruiser where you've got just lots of port and starboard for all broadsides. You know, you can actually have quite a few different sort of overlapping arps here. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have any special trait like some ships do. Just thinking about... I was thinking about what components would go well with the um, the Dauntless in order to sort of support... I mean, you could build it however you want to build it because it's that versatile. But in terms of building it, the, rep- the ways it would represent its past history, like what it was good at, you know, things like the Deep Void Augur Array to really make use of that high detection, you know, boost it even yep. further. Um, augmented Retro Thrusters would, would still you know, improve on your maneuverability as well. It's- Quite manoeuvrable for a big ship as well. 15 yeah. manoeuvrability is pretty good. Yeah. Extended supply vaults would represent your longer distance um, hauling. hauling. Uh, observation dome uh, you know, could fit in with the sort of scouting concept. doesn't actually add to detection, but it gives you achievement points. Yeah. Um, the auto-stabilized logist targeter. Is a, uh, you know, if, you can, if you've got access to um, Archaeotech, that's, that's a good one as well, because it also, I think that gives you both Higher ballistic skill. And detection. And higher detection, yep. Uh, the micro laser defense grid, if you've got access to Xenotech, will help boost your, your turret rating. Uh, exploration bridge is probably one of the more interesting bridges that fits the Dauntless class, I think. Uh, defensive countermeasures, once again, or flak turrets will help you also. So defensive countermeasures is more specifically against things like torpedoes. Pedos. But once again, that's where having a low turret rating, if, you, if your enemy is using torpedoes, low turret rating is going to really bite you in the bum unless you've got defensive countermeasures so and flak fl- launchers <laughs> and flak turrets which of course just increases just your tar- yeah that's right your turret, turret rating with a penalty as well but. that's exactly, exactly it yeah so uh, Mike I mean if you were building a Dauntless for combat I mean how would you, how would you think it's best suited to, to combat in Rogue Trader? Um a lance on the front and some sort of macro cannons on the sides probably something which can put out a, a high strength value so yep. you can get a fair few number of hits in. Yeah. Given you've got the high maneuverability, would you be going for like close-in fighting or stay at range? I said probably you'd want something medium. Yep. I mean, you'd want something which has some range to it because if you're going to be fighting against anyone who... They're going to see you coming. With yep. Dauntless class, it's big enough. I mean, in the scale of space, it's not particularly big, but <laughs> you do suffer penalties with silent running with the larger ships. And you will suffer a penalty using a light cruiser to try and silent run. So you're not going to really sneak up on people. Yeah. And pirates are more likely to try and run away from a light cruiser even than a, a raider or a frigate. I mean, a, a light cruiser size, a frigate or a raider is probably going to start going, well, do we really have the firepower to fight against this thing? Um, so if you're catching pirates out there in the middle of nowhere and they're not using ambush tactics or anything, they'll probably try and run away from me with yeah. a bigger ship like that. And even with a speed of seven, you're not going to be outrunning the no. faster raiders and frigates no. as well. You, but you could probably keep up with them. Yeah. You could keep close. And if you've got you know, something with a nice seven or eight range weapon, you could probably hit them, yeah. cause some damage. Slow them down before they can get away. Slow them down before they get away. You know, Try yeah. and target their thrusters. <laughs> So it's a good pirate hunting ship in some way, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I, I think that's actually probably what it's best at, that, that sort of thing. And it's well suited as well to be protected against ambushes as well, because it's got 19 armour, which is quite quite reasonable. Yeah. You know, it's not the best, but that's pretty good. So, you know, if you're going up close to things and then they start attacking you without warning, you, you should be able to survive that. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't do it too often, but, you know, I think it's all right. So, given you've only got the single port and the starboard 
um, mount. Would you consider using landing bays with this ship at all, or would you probably say that's really something for a larger ship? To be honest, if I was going to go for a landing bays on a light cruiser, yep. there's, I think it's the, oh, I can't remember, what the, the Falchion, I think, yep. is is an actual one, light cruiser. One of the newer design ones. One of the newer design ones, which yeah. has purpose-built landing bays in it. And it has space weapons on the side as well, so. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's prow and dorsal only, oh, okay. which, which still, still you, solves that problem. Yeah. But the main advantage it has is the fact that... Um, those landing bays take up a little bit less space than they would normally because they're purposely built into this thing. Yeah. So if you're going, oh, we want a, a light carrier, this probably isn't the best no, thing. No, so, so this ship's really built around Lance and two macro batteries or three macro batteries, basically, is you? Yeah. Yeah, you could, I'd say even three macro batteries you could probably get away with. Yeah. But, you know, it can take a Lance and because it's a light cruiser size, it can shoot port starboard and forward with a Lance... That gives it a lot of tactical flexibility, and it's still quite manoeuvrable as well. So you're not going to really have... Even if something's directly behind you and you can only turn 90 degrees, you're still going to be able to hit it. Yeah, the advantage with um, having the multiple macro batteries, like having three macro batteries, is if you're going up against like a squadron of three raiders, yeah. you can actually like deal a bit of damage to every single ship each turn, like try and manoeuvre so that both your sides come into play. Whereas if, you really, if you've got a lance and two macro batteries, you're really more suited to... One ship at a time. Yeah. You know, one, yeah. yeah, I'd say three macro batteries is certainly worthwhile doing as well. Yeah, and it also gives you advantage if you're expecting to fight against lots of things like Eldar or opponents that don't use shields. Yeah. Obviously, the advantage being that a lance will punch straight through those if yeah. it hits. Because yeah. you've only got one strength, it makes it a bit more risky. I That's think it. macro batteries... Throughout all the all, as many D10s as you can. Yeah, let's <laughs> pile it on. Yeah. Sh- shotgun approach. Yeah. All right, let's keep going, shall we? Yeah. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by to receive orders. So for today's plot hook, uh, we actually got a suggested plot hook from a listener. So David from Facebook actually contacted us after our last show, which was a Dark Heresy show, and he's thrown in a plot hook. Now, it's a Dark Heresy-based plot hook, so normally I would have waited until... Yeah, five episodes time to do it again then. But I thought this one actually there are ways to adapt this one into other game systems as well, you know, because the Inquisition can cop pretty much anybody except for Agents of Chaos. Yep. Uh but it was more about the discussion we had about Thorians in the last episode. So the plot hook is the Inquisitor assigns his acolytes to protect the Psyker for unknown reasons. During their missions the Psyker shows powers far beyond what is normally considered possible. Is this just a very powerful Psyker? Or is this the bearer of a piece of the power of the Emperor himself? Uh, or could they be the Emperor reincarnated, needing protection while they come into the uh, fullness of their power? Or could they be a very powerful and cunning demon host trying to convince the Acolytes of any one of the above? So this could be something that... Yes, okay, that's the Dark Heresy element of it, but at the end of the day, one good thing that Rogue Traders are very good for is transportation. You know, if you look at... You read the Eisenhorn stories, he had a very good relationship with a Rogue Trader because... He needed the freedom of movement that having access to a rogue trader ship gave. And so you could quite easily have, you know, um, an, an Inquisitor co-opt your rogue trader group in order to transport this, you know, key powerful psyker that, you know, if that particular Inquisitor was a Thorian Inquisitor, you know, the Inquisitor may be completely convinced that they have found, you know, a, a portion of the Emperor's power as such. Oh, and, absolutely. And- also, you could also throw in a bit more of a spin to it for the rogue traders and say, well, 
maybe the Inquisitor has seen omens or received visions or some sort of portents that say that this person has been born or come into their power and they're not in Imperial space. Maybe they're on a world which is no longer a part of the Imperium. Yeah. I mean, there are millions of planets out there which aren't in the Imperium anymore. Who's to say that an emperor or a living saint wouldn't be born on one of those? Yeah. And what if uh, when you had that particular powerful cycle and your ship returned to the Imperium, you know, although the, the the Inquisitor was convinced that they were what they thought, you know, one of the player characters witnesses something that does lead them to believe that this, you know, whatever this thing is duplicitous and somehow involved with, you know, in chaos, how can they convince the Inquisitor that this is the case? Yeah, especially if the Inquisitor is a fervent believer in the Thorian mandate as such. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not that, you know, you should really be convincing Inquisitors to to doubt people, but <laughs> I suppose you could... Like, like, like any fanatic, they can get fanatic for the wrong reasons as well. Yes, so. yes. Sometimes they get a little bit too focused. Exactly it. So anyway, thank you very much, David, for the plot hook. Hopefully yep. you find a way to use it in your games, be they Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, or other. And let's keep going. Okay. Revere the Omnisia, for it is the source of all power. So flicking through some of the books the other day, I was looking for a fun bit of war gear to do for this episode. And it's actually because I was going through Stars of Inequity for the system creation discussion. I actually came across an item I really wanted to cover off. Because this is another one of those cool really mundane items with a really stupidly complex name. Yeah. So I've decided to cover the Mazoa Pattern Long Distance Extendable Retraction Rod, which pretty much is the 40k version of the 10-foot pole. Except for it's collapsible. Except it's collapsible, that's right, and extendable. Which, know, which so. makes it a lot more useful than an old 10-foot <laughs> pole with exactly right. But It's one of those things, like, I mean, I've been playing D&D since first edition, and I never found the use for the 10-foot pole. I know there's... You know, hardcore D&D players out there who would never go anywhere in D&D without a 10-foot pole. You've never u- actually used a 10-foot pole. Now, it always seems so impractical to me because when I was a kid playing D&D, I was five foot. So I'm like, this thing is like twice my height. You, know, what could, you how, were how, never five how, foot. How, how, how could I... Well, <laughs> yes, that's right. I came into this world five foot one or above, clearly. <laughs> I mean, <it's>, yes! <laughs> yeah, I've I, seen your child photos. I, I just, in my head, I could always... I just couldn't imagine... Someone carrying around a stick that was twice their own height. How you'd actually manage it. Especially- I always used to wonder how they'd go down corridors, which were like, you know, what do they do at the corners? Yeah. It's a, it, 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 it's a three foot wide corridor. How do they turn around the corner with a ten foot pole? Yeah, well, I mean, and this this device solves that problem right yes. because it's retractable, you know. Yes. <laughs> so, but uh, that said, the ten foot pole was very useful in my early D and D campaigns. Okay, nice. Yeah. Okay, it really helped. Yeah, it's it helped a lot in Dark Sun because, because we might find ourselves playing D and D at some point in the future if Darren gets his way. So you have to decide whether the ten foot pole is still a mainstay of. Oh, absolutely. Yep, yeah, that's it. Several of them. That's right, yeah. Th- that was the pole, big problem. Put a rope, put a lantern, you know. That was actually the real problem with the 10-foot pole, was that you always needed more than one. Oh, okay, no worries. One 10-foot pole on its own, not really quite as useful okay, as Okay, so what you really need was a lathe. You just, <laughs> you just churn them out then if you need be. So that's not a rudimentary lathe, yeah? Uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the advantage of the, other than the extendability of the, and retractability of the Mazoa pattern, long distance extendable retractable rod is that you can be used for things like pushing buttons from a distance yes you know testing the floor in front of you yes uh, getting across pits yeah that's right yeah it, it, it is you know it's the mechanical canary in some ways uh, but also I mean, that being said like okay if I had a 10 foot pole I don't know I can definitely I, I probably couldn't pole vault a pit to be uh, 
No, no, no. You lay yeah, the pole like... across the pit. Oh, okay. So, okay. I, yeah. I think you're talking about you know, stick the pit, stick at the bottom no. of the pit and sort of swing yourself across. Well, personally, I always found it a bit ludicrous that people are going, "Oh, yeah, I'll poke the button with a ten foot pole." I have trouble pressing things with a ruler, which is thirty centimeters long. Because yeah. it just sort of gets wavery the further away from you it gets. I mean, at ten feet. Do you really think you could poke it? Yeah, you're not, you're not, you're not typing a parcel on a keyboard at ten feet. It, well, you know, de- definitely <laughs> not. Like, you know, you're pushing a hand-sized rune into a wall, as such. You know, so eh, yeah. I don't know. I think even a hand-sized rune into a wall, you're going to be missing it more than you actually hit it. Yeah, but I mean, it's not covered in the books. But you know, yes, the Mazoa pattern, long-distance extendable retractable rod, is fantastic. But it's got nothing compared to the Lucius pattern extendable uh, retractable rod, you know, which is. What's the rarity on this extendable retractable rod? Uh, okay, I've got the book right here. I'm going I'm to look this up. We're going we're to go behind the uh, the curtain here and say I, I had this. This part was not prepared. So, you, you, sorry, I, you, you thought I was not going to ask? It's rare. It's scarce. So it's actually hard to. Well, actually, I suppose it would be hard to find. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, which was the same problem we had in Dark Sun, which was, you know, that that was my D and D game of choice was Dark Sun, and we always had these ten foot poles, and we're thinking. Well, where do these ten foot poles come from? There are no trees, really. Yeah, so so it's it's the same it's the same rarity as the Sinford pattern rapid deployment shelter or tent. Yes. So well, it's a pop up tent. Yes. You just press a button. That's better it. than a real tent. That's it. Yeah. Well, this is better than a real ten foot pole. So yeah. yeah, it's just a really long extendable baton. Yeah, you, you can go further than ten feet at all. I think it's actually several meters in this case. But yeah, once again. The the, the, the the adroitness with which you can push a button from 50 feet away is probably even more substantially difficult than a 10 foot, yeah. 10 foot away button. Yeah. And it's also because of the lever principle, picking anything up from 10 feet away with a pole, yeah. it's going to make it actually quite heavy at the end. That end. But scarce, so scarce is a minus 10, I believe? Uh, I think if you're just getting one of them, scarce would be a zero roll. I thought it's, more, I thought it's better than zero, because I thought that... I don't know. Yeah, it'd be a plus, plus 10. ten. Plus ten, yeah. So, yeah. so you could actually, as one of your starting gear picks of Rotrader, you could have what five, five plus of these extendable poles. You know, yeah. that whole a, your whole pole a of bandolier of, of extendable <laughs> that's poles. Right, yeah, that's it. You could, and and then then we get into like fantastic player montages of trying to come up with what complex machines you could build with a whole bunch of long poles, basically long rods. Yeah. I think there's there's a rope or something which goes solid as well, isn't there, or a whip or something in that oh, same in the, in the same book. Those lines, yeah. I mean, it's from um, Stars of Inequity, and Stars of yeah. Inequity actually has quite a lot of exploration gear in it. Sort of that general, I'm an explorer. I need a lantern or a, or a pole or a rope. Yeah, it's it, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, it's it's D and D dungeon crawl, but it's like, it's forty like k dungeon crawl basically. Yeah, that's what they've sort of come for with uh, this particular one. Yeah, for for the gear, I and mean, actually most of that stuff is really useful. Yeah, so so I mean, there you go. Well, our war gear section is expanded to everything that's in uh, everything that's in uh, Stars of Equity. You know, yeah. get that. How to play it. Plus, it's got all the extra rules for creating your own gear as well, like your yeah. own sort of. I have to be honest. I think really for the Road Trader books, it's definitely one of the better books. Yeah, grapple whip is what you're thinking of the grapple. Yeah, whip? The, I think it's the grapple whip because I mean, it can become rigid, kind of. Yeah, that's yeah. it. There you go. Hmm. All right, cool. And perfect trading for idols. Yes. Throw the other. Throw you the grapple whip. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> all right, let's keep going. My lord. The information you requested is now available for your review. All right, Mike, we've got a review section now, and this is one I know you haven't read, because I myself read it today. 
Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I, I was trawling through. So what I did was recently, knowing that all the FFG stuff's going to come down in February, is I went onto the FFG website and I downloaded a copy of every single like PDF content they had for all the different game systems. I'm pretty sure I had most of it anyway. I thought I'll just download it all now. Everything, yeah. So that I've got it all, so that when it goes away in February, you know, I'm not going to lose anything. And I realized there was actually a bit of web content that you know we haven't actually covered previously, and it's for Rogue Trader too. Okay. Uh, and this is called Trader's Nexus. Uh, it was a sort of add-on supplement for Lure of the Expanse. So it was put up by Sam Stewart back in 2010, from memory. Uh, based upon the f- stuff I found today, so we've covered Lure of the Expanse in the past. But but part of the uh, storyline of Lure of the Expanse is that the group has to go around from location to location, collecting, collecting the parts. Yeah, the, the, I have uh, actually not, not read the parts, the, the points on a star map. Basically, yeah, I have actually read this one. You have read this one. Okay, I have yeah. read this one. That's right. And this is just basically like you know, hey, just in case you know five part points wasn't enough, here's an optional six point as a Literally, sort of ten, ten page adventure. The pirate group on the planet, isn't it? Uh, sort of. This is this is zombies. It's zombies. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it's it's the it's the one that you know that we could never run with your partner because she's terrified of zombies. Yeah. Uh, or in this case, they're called Maya zombies. So this is basically a three part. I want to call it adventure. It's a scene. It's 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 a. You could if depending on how long your game session takes, it's like a one session of play. Yeah. You know, is that basically your group? is on the, the trail, to the heathen trail, trying to find what they need to for Lure of the Expanse, and this is one place they can go to. There's a gazetteer about the world, and part of this world is it's got a terrible curse. And the terrible curse is... Oh people, my God! Yes. A world with a, a terrible curse. curse. That's something I haven't heard of in That's it. And so part of the curse is that the people that spend too much time on this world eventually become mindless zombies. Uh, and it is a case where basically... You know, as your characters spend more time on the planet's surface, they have to start making rolls, uh, or they start to get very sick, and pretty much it, it gets to a point where it says, if you failed this roll, the only course of action is to return to your ship for detox treatment, basically. You know, and it doesn't specify what you need, it just sort of says, you know, a, a ship has whatever is required to treat this illness as such. Uh, but if you don't treat it, or if your character dies while under the curse, you rise again d10 rounds later as a Maya zombie and attack the rest of the group so um certainly it's got classic horror tropes you know it is it is the classic sort of you know so basically the group goes to um uh goes to find the the nexus point that they need which is in the middle of this mire filled with Maya zombies and they discovered that the the jewel which powers the, the the point is missing um they then basically discover an NPC on the planet that has the jewel. So then it basically comes down to, okay, so what is the character's approach to get the jewel off this person? You know, is it negotiation? Is it bartering? Is it threats? Is it actual violence? Um, you know, and it just gives a number of different options to how to, you know, it basically, person has MacGuffin I want. What's my methodology for doing that? And it just gives a whole bunch of examples, but it really is, I get, this is part of the GM player. Contracts is how you want to run this part. And then the third scene is pretty much return to the zombie-infested mire and reattach the gem, which is actually like a... It's not just a case of putting it back on top. It's you know, effectively the device is broken, needs repair, uh, in order to actually get the data that's required and move on to the next step in the heathen trail. Yeah. So uh, it does say at the start of the book you could use this adventure standalone. 
uh, you know, I guess for whatever reason, you know, there's a MacGuffin that your characters need to get access to, and they got to go and get the part as such. You know, it really is. It's a three scene thing. You could do it, and you could do it literally in an hour of a gameplay if you're going fast, or I said you could build a session around it. But it's just a little add-on part for uh, Lure of the Expanse. Yeah, because I originally was going to run Lure of the Expanse, so I read it yeah. and I read through this as well because I was considering, well. We need five parts. I'll create six, yeah, and then the players actually have a choice. And there's one they can skip. That's exactly what I'd do. Is I'd say you, you need less than the required number of, of options, and you give the players all the options, and they get to pick. It gives it gives a bit more agency to the players as to yeah, what what they do instead of railroading it. Oh, you have to go do them. What order are you going to do them in? Yeah. Now you've got a bit more choice than just simply what, which order. You yeah. can say, well, we'll skip that one because it sounds crap. Part of me sort of wonders whether this this was yeah because only like ten pages. Whether this just missed out on Lure of the Expanse because of page count, for example, you know, it read that way. Yeah, it's bit. got it's got artwork, it's got all the yeah, you know, and, and literally, there's like no forward and no like no back cover. You know, yes, it's got a front cover, but it's just like straight into first page Gazetteer. Not sort of like this is an adventure module designed to be used as part of yeah. Lure of the Expanse. You only know that if you actually read where it was announced on the website what it's for. It literally just goes straight into the adventure part. So you could, it, it feels like 10 pages that were pulled out of the book. But, you know, it reads as well as the rest of the book. And we've reviewed Lure of the Expanse before many episodes ago. So yeah. I'm not going to give this one a separate score. Really, it's part of Lure of the Expanse. It's a bit of an expanded, yeah. expanded section. So. I agree with you. I think that's the best way to run it is as an optional choice so that the players have a bit more freedom of which yeah. ways ones they go for. I, I don't feel it's robust enough to, like, even though it says you could make it. Uh, I, I wouldn't make it its own, own yeah, game. You'd have so. to... Unless you're willing to do some hard work on, on actually bulking it out a bit, yeah. but with, with some bulking, I think it could be work. It could be worked okay. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to if you try to create like a whole uh, adventure around the whole fact that the idea of the curse and that you know we can only really get this thing if we can somehow cure the curse because anyone that tries to go and get access to the device is you know in very, it, it inexplicably changed into a zombie as such so yeah. make it a research mission and you know also a complicated thing if you wanted to yeah. Uh, but yeah at the end of the day if you're running Lure of the Expanse there's no reason not to include Traders Nexus as one of the options one of the options exactly right yeah, yeah. okay let's go on to our final discussion okay ignorance is a blessing the data you requested is unavailable all right, this is a conversation that I wanted to have for a while. Uh, you know, in the past we speculated, you know, would there be a second edition Rogue Trader? And uh, unless something happens with Games Workshop, then no, they won't. So, you know, we like the second ed Dark Heresy rule set. And I know of other people that have run uh, Rogue Trader using second ed rules. So one example is the guys from Total Party Thrill podcast. They they run Rogue Trader using Dark Heresy second ed rules. Yep. So I just want to have a quick conversation, just you and I and all the people listening to us that can't chip in, uh, with things that you could use from Dark Area Second Edition, how you could try and translate that into Road Trader to, to capture it. And I've broken down into a few segments. So let's start off first off with the character creation part. So because Road Trader First Edition had the whole career path from you know, start to finish, it ends off with a actual career choice. Whereas uh, Dark Harry's Second Edition was more built around the um, the homeworld background and role, and sort of role was your pivotal choice because that really affected what your character did in the group. Yeah. So I got my thoughts. Let me start with you. How would that translate into Rogue Trader? Be perfectly honest. I think that as a GM, you should try and work out your own life path thing, but probably tone down the rewards in it. Yeah. So you know, quite minor bonuses. 
and I'd keep Homeworld background role pretty much as they are in Dark Heresy. Maybe some some moving of, of things, for, especially for backgrounds. Backgrounds is the main thing which you're going to have a little bit of trouble fluffing around with, but I think realistically most rogue traders would pick their crew, their, their advanced bridge crew from various Imperial institutions. You know, you want someone who knows how to fight? Well, Imperial Guard, where else are you going to go? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So let me, let me tell you how I do it. So first off, I know that like Rogue Trader versus First Dead Dark Heresy. The Rogue Trader characters were more powerful. Yeah, they had five, five more stats, in, yeah, five more stats. They had more skills, more talents. You know, they they were a effectively a five thousand XP character compared yeah. to a zero XP starting. Yeah, I'd oh, say five hundred XP starting. Yeah, I'd say it. five extra points in every stat and perhaps well, double the XP. Here's what I'm, here's what I might do is that I would consider saying if you're building it for a Rogue Trader, you do a Homeworld two backgrounds and a roll because the backgrounds give you your skills your talents and your gear so the gear are a bit superfluous because you end up with like you know with two pro weapons and two melee weapons and two sets of armor or that's okay you can just pick and choose what exactly, you want to keep yeah. out yeah but it's going to give you, a, a, you know, more skills more talents yeah. that's going to sort of add to that but not more base stats which no, is right. I think yeah. what rogue traders kind of need a little bit more yeah so I'd say probably five in every stat and that being said it would give you an extra aptitude though so yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that that makes stats a bit cheaper, I guess. But uh, yeah, not enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say, I'd say you mix of your way with an extra five in every stat. Yeah, because you'd certainly need to uh, create a few new backgrounds, like Navis Noblite, for example. Yeah. To come and navigators, you know the the um, I, mean, I guess the the, the te- you've already really got the um, Astro Telepathica. You can just use what they've got in in Dark Heresy. Uh, the other thing you could potentially do is. So you've got the role, and the role is, they're more nebulous terms like warrior, etc. Uh, you could, for example, add in an elite advance for each, I guess, sort of ship, like you know, a rogue trader elite I, advance. I, I think you definitely need at least a rogue trader elite advance, similar to the Inquisitor elite advance. Yeah, you probably have a rogue trader navigator, you definitely have to have. Yeah, but I, um, yeah, it would almost be that they'd be free yeah. for the characters. Well, the, the, or even that, you just say that you know, every, every rogue trader, second edition character gets... The elite advance, what their position on the ship is, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So you can create a bunch of elite advances. You know, one for like you know archmelts and everything. And have XP costs for them as well, because that way it actually gives you an out for when the rogue trader dies, which first edition rogue trader never. Never really had. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so if if the rogue trader dies, someone else can another character can step into that role. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I think that's probably the easiest way to actually do the character creation side. I mean, you um, could even do it that that elite advance, instead of giving everyone five extra in every stat, that elite advance just gives you bonuses to the stats that are most important. Like, the Astra Telepathica, your telepath would get bonus to willpower and intelligence or yeah. something. Opposite. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Well, when I suggested the, the double background, to allow you to take the same background twice. So if you, if you really wanted to have, you know, the skills at plus ten, you could take the same the, background twice and have... The Imperial Guard, Imperial Guard. Yeah, fewer <laughs> skills, but... Higher level on those skills and yeah, such, that yeah. Makes sense. Especially because someone give you choices of either or skills as well. Yeah. So you could have, you know, both, both like, you know, Medicaid and, um, so yeah, Medicaid and, and uh, Navigate Surface, for example. Yeah. So there are options as well. Uh, okay, talking about skills, I would definitely use the skill list from Dark Age Second Edition, which is substantially shorter than yeah, it's Rogue Trader. Substantially better skill system. I just well. think, I, I've forgotten this one. Does the commerce skill appear in Dark Age Second Edition? I don't think it does. No, I don't think so. But I think you could do it as a trade 
commerce or a trade. Yeah, okay. yeah because, because I mean, that's really like the one skill which is central to the road trader sort of style or such, which I don't think appears in Dark Harry Second Edition. So. Yeah, I, I think I think you'd best be best off doing it as a trade. Just yeah. trade merchant. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, that's fine. Talents is probably where it gets the hardest, first off. So I would try to use Dark Harry Second Edition talents as much as possible, especially combat talents. So any of those talents like, you know, Swift Attack... Um, you know, hard target, all the various ones that affect combat abilities, they've been uh, you know, developed and refined over six different game systems. You really need to use the most current one of those. Now, of course, uh, Dark Heresy's got all these ones like Clues from the Crowd and you know, all the ones to do with interrogation and investigation. Move those from the sort of an interrogation side of thing to an exploration side of things. Yeah. I mean, clues, you, you, change clues from the crowd, the name of it from clues to a crowd to clues in the ruins. Yeah. So I, I'd be looking, for example, at the, if someone wanted to bring across a talent from First Dead Road Train, I'd certainly consider it, provided it wasn't really a, a combat talent. You know, the combat talents, there's enough in Second Ed Dark Heresy once you factor in the extra books to say, okay, you've got all the combat you want there as such. Uh, and just focus on the more interesting other talents as well. The psychic system, you would just use what's in Dark Harry's Second Edition. It's got it's got telepathy, yeah. so it doesn't really have telepathy on the same scale that Astrotelepathica does, but really, that's more akin to what you do in the ship. That's more of a ship rule than it is a, a player level rule or such. Yeah, just make it the special ability of the elite advance. Like yeah. a special psychic power called Astral Telepathy. Yeah, there Done. you go. That's it. Um... The subtlety system, you probably would drop as a road trader, drop it as such. But you would need to work out something to do with influence versus profit factor. Because first off, influence in Dark Harry Second Edition is per player, whereas profit factor in First Dead Road Trader is for the group. Okay, I'd say almost make it influence is influence with the crew. Or change influence, the personal influence, to personal profit factor and have a group profit factor which caps it. Okay. So therefore, the you know the rogue trader, as a family, could be extremely rich with a group profit factor of fifty. Yeah. But the rogue trader himself doesn't really know how to leverage that money. He can't access it all, so his personal profit factor may only be thirty-five. Yeah. So I'd say probably go something like it that. Just use the influence score as that basically. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But have fine. a a set group profit factor which is always going up as you do your missions. And likewise, it affects the group's profit factor, individual profit factor as well, the individual profit factor and the group profit factor. Okay. Uh, Starships, I would use entirely the rules from first edition. Yeah. They, they, they work well, they're robust. You know, the, the different actions you can do, I think all, all the skills translate across, you know, tech use, command, Medicaid, that all translates across. So, 100%. Yeah, I'd say that there's no need to make any changes to that Starship rule system. Uh, and then lastly, the adversaries. You, you can just I mean, there, there is plenty of adversaries in Dark Heresy Second Edition that you can use, like both foreign and domestic, you know, imperial and, and aliens and demons as well. Uh, and it's not that hard to create new creatures, really. You've got all the tra- all the traits options as well. In I think honestly, the most difficult thing is going to be the gear. Yeah, because rogue traders are renowned for having you know Xenos weapons and all sorts of weird and wonderful things which don't really exist. Dark Heresy First Edition, so you may need to do. A well, by the time you're adding things like enemies without, though, yeah. um, there's there's quite a bit of sort of Xenos Harbor in there as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you got to look at what you can bring across from the First Edition and say that's balanced, that's fair. I mean, a lot of the weapons aren't actually that bad. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it really just comes down to are they using weapon traits that don't exist anymore? Yeah. 
If it has a weapon trait that doesn't exist anymore, find one that's close to it yeah. or drop it altogether. Yeah, that's I, it. I'd suggest against creating your own versions of new weapon traits. Yeah. It's because they're not going to be balanced. And, and, you know, there are some items which are really, what they present to the game is fluff, you know, yeah. like a Mazoa pattern, long distance, extendable, retractable rod. Yeah. You know, that, that would port very well from first and second edition. Probably minor minor changes to it, you know, but uh, I think that otherwise it's... Well, pretty... rarity would be the main difference. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, I'd, I'd almost say with getting gear, yeah. use the, the, the purchasing stat system yeah. from first edition rather than from Dark Heresy second. Okay, just because, a, just to benefit the rogue traders of, they get, have... The, us, the scalability to get yeah. Yeah, multiple everything, yeah. Easier for them to get things as well. Yeah, should be easier for them to get things. Yeah, but overall, I think that's quite playable, though. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's it. And then you've once you've got your aptitude set, then development doesn't. You don't have to go and work out, you know, alternate careers and you know different uh, variations on things. It's just it develops just like like Dark Heresy Second Edition. Really, the hardest thing really is just adding in those extra options, at character creation. Yeah. Yeah. Doable. I'd say doable. Yeah. I think when we finally come around to talking about doing the same thing in Death Watch, it might be a little bit more difficult, though. I think Death Watch <laughs> and Chaos Space Marines for Black Crusade would be the hardest. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave those a few episodes away, shall we? We'll just yeah. Wait and see what Games Workshop does first. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, just some thoughts anyway. Maybe you can make use of it, maybe you won't. But just uh, if you're thinking about starting a new Road Trader game, you know, don't overlook the rule set created in the second edition because it's basically had five games worth of development from first edition Rogue Trader. Yeah, a lot so. of it works a lot better. Yeah. So I think it's definitely worth looking at exactly. if you're considering doing it. Alright then I think it's time to move on and finish off the show. Okay. All astropaths in the choir chamber. Message incoming. Alright, at this point in the show we normally talk about reviews we've received. I had a quick look through there's no new reviews recently. Uh, but we have had some comments through our uh, social media channels. So, first off, it's been mentioned on Facebook, but I want to say a really big thank you to Messiahside, yep. uh, aka Sean, uh, who has helped us get our website up and going again. He's had a fantastic job. So, you know, it's, it's all looking nice again. Um, it's looking very nice. That's it. So, uh, there's, there's a login part to it now. I'm not sure. I know what I can do a login. I can add new episodes, but maybe in the future, I know we can add other stuff you can do by logging. I'm not sure. Yeah, yep. personalized polls and that, you know, work it out and see how we go. But anyway, the website looks great. Even if you just listen to us through iTunes and or Stitcher now, uh, check out the website as well. Have a quick look at it and, and yeah, you know, feel free to say thanks to Sean on the Facebook page as well for all the hard work he's done or on Google Plus as well. Uh, also, I will mention that uh, our friend Benj posted on uh, our Facebook page recently that he does a lot of driving for work and was recently listening to one of our podcasts in the car with some co-workers yep. and he learned through that his co-workers were also gamers who were also 40k gamers so you know shout out to Benj and his co-workers if they listen to our next episode so yep. you know they know that yep we we, we, we heard about your uh, your escapades there yep always uh, thankful for new listeners exactly right yes even if they are ex-gamers no one's you're never an ex-gamer you're, nah. just, you're just a, a, a lapsed gamer you're just a gamer in remission that's it <laughs> Uh, okay, so there's a few ways you can contact the show if you want to do so. Uh, our lovely new website is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plusgrimdartpodcast. We tweet at, at grimdartpodcast. Our email is show at grimdartpodcast.com. And now our website's up. Our voicemail's back up again as well. So you can now, once again, go to the website, click on the send voicemail link, and send us a 
a, a, a verbal, you know, an audio thing which we can play on the show and respond yeah. to. And thank you very much for giving. Okay, uh, episode 78 is coming up. It will be a Death Watch episode. We are definitely talking about Black Templars. Uh, and it should be out by then, so I will definitely be reviewing uh, Space Hulk Deathwing as well. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, other, other elements will make their way in before we do the next show, but uh, it'll be sometime around Christmas, hopefully. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing you then. I hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Michael, thank you once again for taking part. Thank you very much. And uh, we will catch you next time. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grim Dark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibio's Music Alley, music.mibio.com.